0: I want to preface this episode that the action of me deciding to go to Memphis, Tennessee is incredibly dangerous and life-threatening. I do not condone flying at all during the COVID-19 pandemic and encourage everyone to stay home if they can and keep healthy. There are no excuses of why it went, and there will be no ifs, ands, or buts that follow this statement. Be safe and be very cautious. On July 5th, 2008, I lost my father in a single-engine plane crash. I had barely turned 13, and the pain of losing a parent is one that is devastating at any age. By the time we received his body, had the funeral, and learned he was to earn a reward for valor and safety with the company he worked for, school was going to start at the end of the week. It was a difficult decision to stay and not go to Memphis with my mom and two of my brothers but I decided to stay home with my grandparents. Unfortunately, one of my brothers was also unable to go either because he was serving a Mormon mission at that time. It's been 12 years, and I'm laying next to my girlfriend trying to sleep. When I get this feeling, I need to go to Memphis and finally see where it happened. I couldn't sleep, I was anxious, and I bought a ticket at 2 in the morning in the bathroom with my phone at 3%. A month later, I bought my brother a ticket, rented a historical home, and we were off to finally see the first resting ground of my dad. Give me about a half a teacup of bass.
1: Now I need a pound of fat back drums. Now give me four tablespoons of ballin' Memphis guitars. This gonna taste alright. Hi, my name is Morgan Esberg, and this is Women Travel, a podcast about the places women have been and the things they did there. And I'm your co-host, Annika Sieverts. And this week, we're talking about Annika's trip to Memphis. First of all, I want to ask, what was the flight experience like for you? I was
0: shocked at how many people are flying Like, I guess not necessarily, like, for 4th of July, because, like, that kind of makes sense. But, like, I've seen pictures where um, airlines are, like, keeping the middle seats open. They are not doing that.
1: Well, I heard that depending on what the airline is. So, like, American Airlines are filling them up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, we took an American airline because I got a package deal Mm -hmm. with my card. Um, So, yeah, I was just, like... This is insane. And so everyone has to wear masks, which is totally fine. Um, I had no problem with that. Was there anything beyond wearing masks? Was there anything different? The only thing different is, like, they said they couldn't give snacks and, like, drinks. So there was no snacks, which, like, eh, that's fine. They're usually not good, slash, I can't eat them because I'm allergic to canola oil. Uh, But eventually they started coming with water, even though they said they weren't going to and some of them were like what do you want and some of them like a sprite he's like okay you got it so I think it depends on uh the flight attendant and like what I don't want to say moral code but maybe that is the right word of like (laughs) what duties but the craziest one was like landing in Dallas Fort Worth Texas like it was packed Almost like sardines in a can is, like, the best metaphor. Just, like, everyone is just so close. Like, almost, like, back to chess. And I was like, oh, this is not... This is not a good place. And and I was like, this is why Texas and Florida have some of the worst cases right now. Like, this is a prime example. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, if I'm going to get it, it's probably not going to be in Memphis. It's going to be in the freaking airport.
1: After hearing about your trip... um, almost immediately i was like so you really you really took on this being a co-host responsibility and you were like
0: oh yeah i gotta get out there and travel and you know get that content like it just like happened because like i planned it before like we started talking about this podcast but then i was like so inspired by you because i think we just inspire each other all the time uh i was like oh while I'm here. I should take like sound clips and like really think about the podcast I'm going to make. Hell yeah! As well as enjoying my time in Memphis. We're both wearing white. I see the barbecue place. White shirts.
1: That like not good from from the introduction we know this is going to be a heavy podcast so (laughs) yeah currently i want to know what's the status of tennessee right now when we talked before Mm -hmm. about this you said uh someone someone mentioned they already know
0: how to burn the city down and and what's the story there like at first gunner and i were kind of i wouldn't say i was nervous about going to tennessee i was fine with it But Gunnar was a little bit more nervous because, like, the crime rate in Memphis is one of the highest in the cities. Probably, like, physical crime rate
1: rather than white-collar crime rate. Yes. Just clarifying. Yes. The definition of crime is defined by
0: society. Yes. Anyway. (laughs) No, I love that. Love that. We love uh, redefining words. I love it. But yeah, but that was his sort of, like, his perception of, like, what Memphis is. Because he had previously gone to Memphis with my dad when my dad was alive And my my dad was like, hey, don't make us go on this bridge. And then gave, like, the GPS to Gunner. And Gunner made him go over the bridge. And my dad was so mad. He was like, we could have been carjacked. Like, Mm. what are you talking about? And so Gunner took me on the bridge. It's like, oh, dad's going to be so mad at you, Gunner. (laughs) Um, But when we went there, it's, like, really peaceful like there's yeah there's shady areas like you don't want to go to like it's mostly like gas stations like you pull it to the wrong gas station and you're like ooh maybe not but other than that it's like a my experience like as someone who's now a minority in a state which was awesome like I never experienced like anything that made me go uh oh like I should probably skedaddle out of here like everyone was so nice so friendly Um, So it was actually our pizza delivery guy, (laughs) because we we flew in late the first day, and the only thing that was open was Papa John's. Okay. (laughs) So we did that, and the pizza delivery guy was just, like, super chill. I think, you know, just your standard kind of, like, hippie pizza guy is like, oh, man, dude. Ah, you're sick. That's cool. Like, I heard some of the conversations he had with my brother. He's like, oh, no way. Yeah. Sweet, he's like, Yeah, I'm just a little lost. So Connor went downstairs. He was like, ah oh. he's like, don't worry about it. We mostly stay at City Hall sitting on the steps. And he goes, and the police are even there protesting with us. And he goes, and then he goes, and plus we've burned down our own city, so we kinda know how to protest. And Connor is like, What? Hell yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Excuse me? Um, Please tell me more about this. So what he's talking about is the Memphis riots of 1866, which occurred from May 1st to May 3rd in Memphis, Tennessee, where racial violence was uh, ignited by political, social, and racial tensions following the American Civil War. Uh, So essentially, a bunch of Union Army mobs of right residents and policemen rampaged through black neighborhoods and the houses of freedmen attacking, assaulting, and killing black soldiers and civilians and eventually burning their houses down.
1: Did I hear you correctly that they burned down the soldiers of
0: black men or of Confederate soldiers? It was burning down black men's houses and neighborhoods. Oh. Well,
1: that's not very fun and empowering. I know, right? That just sucks. Damn it, America. Yeah. Um, I'm sure this is the only dark spot on American history, though. Right? R- right? Right? Yeah, the, o- the only one right now. I'm just saying it's only fun if we burn down cities that, like, A, won the Super Bowl, or B, are full of white races. That's the only two city burnings that I won.
0: <laughs> okay, as I'm reading this, I think this is really cool. So federal troops are actually sent to stop the violence Uh, um, of white people killing poor black neighborhoods and setting them on fire and because of the public attention which actually got other cities to riot and report atrocities hey does that sound a little bit familiar? The US Congress decided to add the 14th amendment to the United States Constitution which granted full citizenship to African Americans so you know Apparently Memphis does know how to protest because they got the 14th Amendment on there, baby. They were the original Black Lives Matters protests. They are. Hell yeah. It's a thing.
1: I'm starting it now. It's where you like yeah. bow your head in a namaste kind of pose, but you say <laughs> hell yeah instead. Hell yeah. Uh, hell yeah. Hell <laughs> yeah. I like that. Since you had a few days before you were able to go to your destination, I want to ask you about the places you visited. Of course, Memphis has some incredible barbecue, which thank you for sending me pictures to be jealous <laughs> of. And there were some funky bookstores. Um, you mentioned a witch shop? Yeah.
0: I, it was kind of like... Gunner's kind of like a crazy... like I don't know what he's going to do when I like jokingly suggest things. So I was like, oh, ha, 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 look, it's a witch shop. And Gunner's like... Let's go in. I'm like, really? I'm like... What? I'm low on black candles? Yeah, I know. I was like, he's like, yes, my my girlfriend loves, like, the essential oils. Like, let's go in and look. So we walked in, and it's kind of sh- small, and it's run by, like, two uh, white people. And it's just, like, filled... With, so, like, on the right side was, like, filled with saints' candles. Oh, we need to talk about that later. Can, can we put that in the newsletter or something? Yeah. All right. Hey, hey, if you guys
1: want to hear more about Saint's Candles, uh, it'll be in our newsletter. (laughs) So sign up for our newsletter. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So we had that was on this side. And then on the left side was uh, rocks. (laughs) Sorry. Rocks. um, Energized crystals. (laughs) And then they had pendulums. So I got myself a pendulum and my girlfriend a pendulum because she's kind of into like the fun witchcraft uh-huh. where it's like oh cooking crafts and your cooking spells in your kitchen cookbook. I will say the, the to before we move on to like other places I went. Uh, when I went up to the desk, like I had the two pendulums and I had the Venus of Willendorf, which is one of the oldest. <laughs> what did I say it wrong? <laughs> no, it just sounds insane.
1: Welcome to potions in this class. We
0: will be studying the Venus of Willendorf. Venus of Willendorf. It sounds like a house. Oh my god, yeah. But essentially she's from Mesopotamia and she's like really one of the first recorded goddesses that people have found. Hell yeah. So this is what she looks like, Tim Morgan. Titties. Titties. <laughs> she got a big old booty. she got a big old she tongue. She's thick. She's a thick bitch and we love her for it. Yes, she's thick and she's got a big belly button. Yes, which kind of like goes against the grain of what most people thought. Like, I just, what's up with her head though? Can I see that again? Yeah, that's
1: her hair. Okay, but it's it's like coiled around. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. I am 100% sure that some British white dude was like, we're gonna call this the Venus of Winnendorf in Mesopotamia. And like, that's not a British accent.
0: Oh, right, <laughs> right, see here. <laughs> (laughs) that's nothing this one has big old titties this one's got
1: titties and so we're going to keep it uh it's going to be the Venice of Winnendorf after my (laughs) great-grandfather um and the majesty of the queen and my fantastic mustache (laughs) (laughs) like is that a, a good assumption because like there's no way based off what you just showed me that it was
0: originally called the Venus of Winnendorf. Like, I, no. There's no way. No, no, no. It's, okay. it's a dead name language for sure. Like, no one probably actually knows what she is. So it's like the
1: Anglicanized... Anglicanized? Yeah. Kind of? Okay. Yeah.
0: Cultural appropriation!
1: I don't even know what it is, because it's like, it's preservation, and that's nice. Um... But there's no freaking way that it was called
0: the Venus of Winnendorf. So quick information about her. So Mesopotamia was kind of like the middle of the land where like a lot of like uh, original farming techniques and weapon building. It was Bronze Age, right? Yeah, Bronze Age. Um, And so like what she was, she's, uh, as we assume by people that have studied her... Is that she's a goddess of fertility, and she's actually this small, which I showed Morgan. She's about... She can fit in... Yeah, she can fit in your in the palm of your hand pretty well, right? Yeah, palm of my hand. She's about six inches, and she's supposed to be, like, a, a travel, so they would travel with her. Oh, like a totem. hmm So they found quite a few of her, but I think the original one is, of course, in the Met. <laughs> You know, stolen property. Where it belongs, right? This is an American creation. Mm -hmm. And we have like a four foot Anubis as well. And I was like, I want to go see it. But also I'm like, I'm terrified because you told me that's where you do all your ceremonies. In the basement of this historical building? Yeah. Or in this witch shop? In this witch shop. So did you go look? No, I was too scared to be like, can I see? Because he told us, like, yeah, that's Damn. where we do all our rituals when we close shop. And I was like,
1: <laughs> okay. All right, listeners, now's your, now's your task. You have to go down to the basement of this unnamed witch shop in Memphis in order to f- see Anubis's face. And there you will find your missing quest item. And you will be able to resolve what you truly need. Rather than questioning what you want. Roll for constitution. Um, you also went to the Slave Haven Museum. What motivated this, and do you think it was more motivated by the Black Lives Matter movement going on right now?
0: Yes and no. So the motivation for me going to the Slave Haven uh, Museum was one I love learning different histories that I won't necessarily learn in Boise, Idaho so I probably would have gone to the museum even if it wasn't the Black Lives Matter but however I was more aware that I wanted to study more of a Black history especially during um, the Black Lives Matter protests and like being in Memphis which is a predominantly like Black city. Um, I really wanted to educate myself more because, like, in school you kind of learn about the Underground Railroad, but, like, me and my uh, perceptions, like, oh, there's gonna be, like, a train underneath the house or something like that. No, <laughs> it wasn't. It was just like a, a, I guess it would be, like, a very, like, decent sized house for, like, a wealthy white landowner, which is who had owned the house.
1: Oh yeah, it was it was um, it was a guy who owned a few factories.
0: Yeah, so he was a, a white abolitionist who, using his wealth and power and white privilege, would buy slaves from the market and then keep them in a in his cellar uh, until he managed to find a way for them to go to Illinois. So they didn't.
1: Theoretically they didn't have to work as slaves at all. Like he just circumvented that.
0: Yeah, no. And because like he kept going to the market, people just assumed like he had working slaves in the house. So they never questioned it, which I was like, that's genius. Um and so he would like keep them in the cellar for like two months and it's like dark and quiet and he brings them food and water, but there's like no excuse me. There's there's no light or um running water or, like, a toilet to really go. And so they're stuck there for, like, around two months until he opens the door and goes, run. Oh, my God. Because you run to this place, there's a boat waiting for you, and you do not stop running. And they would run through his um, factories because they at least knew it was kind of safe to do that.
1: When you hear stories about this, it's conflicting because if you put yourself in that position, it is incredible that this guy was doing it and i'm glad that he was able to do it however it makes me think of the the end of huck finn where um jim is stuck in a a, gosh it was like a shed for a while and he didn't know what was going to happen next and when you put yourself into that
0: mentality it's so awful yes Definitely some mental trauma for sure. And, like, Asia was so cool because she was so funny, too. Because uh, it's like this, the seller has this big drop and she was like, you know, it's it's this big first step. So I just want you to be really careful. I just have to warn people. And I was like, Ugh. and then I, like, took a took a step down, which I think is kind of like a great metaphor for, like, fighting against internalized racism. Where, like, you see a staircase and you're like, ah, the first step is really big, I don't know what to do. But, like, once you take it, you're like, oh, this is easy. And then it's just kind of an easier route.
1: And then after that, you had talked about the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Tell me about that one people were,
0: like, waiting in line to, like, go in, which I think is kind of smart, but they were booked for the entire day and the next day, so there was no way we could go. And so that's when we started walking to the shops and go to the witch. But there was a protester on the side of the road that said, like, this museum needs to move, um, they're ruining the image of Martin Luther King by giving you stupid souvenirs that you're buying, And she goes, this is my passion to make this spot less of, like, a decorated monetary museum, but more of, like, really an honor of what MLK did, because that's where he was shot. And so Gunnar and I didn't really know that, because we didn't brush up on our Memphis history as much as we should have going there. But afterwards, I was like, did he? I was like, oh, damn, he was shot here. And Gunnar's like, that's crazy. Because, like... (laughs) it's like it's definitely one of those you don't know what you don't Mm -hmm. know so I, I totally understood where the protester was like coming from like yeah this is a place where like someone very important to the movement died and like and to attach it to like a monetary place where the government is making you know money off of this when you know there's theories that they paid for his own assassination it it does feel kind of gross but it's also like one of those things where like preserving history but yeah I don't know that brings me to
1: my question that I had about the Lorraine Motel uh, museum and the civil rights movement museum is I I would like to ask why is it important to preserve a location like that like it's it's In similar to keeping JFK's bloody car, Um, it seems gruesome and threatening that the place where Martin Luther King Jr., who believed in peace as the best way to justice, was murdered. And I wonder if it changes the memory from being about his fight to being about his gruesome end. And I I really want to hammer down, like, it's almost a threat to keep places like that. Yeah, it's a threat to his message, it's a threat to people who want to continue on with that. It's sort of like preserving the Anne Frank House, which is important, without keeping monuments of people who stood up against the Nazi party before they even came into power. I wonder if it makes their memory more of a threat to how they ended, their lives ended, rather than a memorialization of their cause.
0: Yeah, and now that I'm thinking about it, what, I mean, this is, of course, me living not in Memphis. <laughs> so, like, I, there's only so much, like, criticism I can give, because that's not a state I live in. Um, in my opinion, what I think should have happened is that they raised the Lorraine Motel, or, that that's the right word, right? That is the right Okay, word, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, built kind of, like, either a park that has a statue of him there that's more about like his movement and his words I think that would have been a lot more appropriate and maybe keep this this civil movement museum there or maybe move it somewhere that's a little closer to like places he actually gave speeches to or like even at the the place where they uh, burned down Oh, the church? Not the church, the uh, the neighborhood. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. W- yeah the the Memphis yeah. fires. Like if they had like, built that would something that there. Been a cool, because that's not to say like that's a start of the civil movement, but that's like a really big factor that then went on to change government history. So, mm-hmm. and that was a success. Yeah. In a way. In a, in a way!
1: The reaction was yeah, a success. Yeah.
0: And it still kind of goes to the fact that like oh but you're still building over a town that had like a couple hundred people murdered and oh, I don't know dude the land of America is just soaked with blood. Like anywhere you step like it's it's just problematic to build anywhere for profit especially because it's not our land. <laughs> the thought that I had. Yeah. It's. I think they're good thoughts to have. And, like, if I ever go back to Memphis, like, I totally want to go there and see, like, the rhetoric that they're using in that museum. Like, is it about everyone in the civil movement? Or is it just about Mar- Martin Luther King and his contribution, which was very important, but he wasn't the only one. And does it end with us going to the Lorraine Hotel and seeing his room where he got shot and do they preserve it as like a crime scene that's that's a question i'll have to answer the next time i go back so stay tuned in like two three years (laughs) um
1: how did the conversation so and then your purpose of this trip it's it is kind of like a pilgrimage that you embarked on and you had to go and talk to some farmers and get permission to go onto the property how was the conversation with the farmers how did that go
0: at first gunner and i were kind of like because like are they gonna bring out guns because like it's the farmer land and uh <laughs> when you fly airplanes one of the rules they tell you is don't go over a farmers. Like, property, Or they will shoot your plane So Gunnar and I have that mentality Of like we gotta be real careful Um so The farmer that My dad's plane crashed in Is, is called Chuck But his gate was open But we didn't know where his house was And we didn't want to like go in in case he was Like doing work and like get in trouble But I also told Gunnar I'm like if we tell them our story They're not gonna say no Like could you imagine Like hey um one of our parents died here. Can we see it? And you'd be like, no. <laughs> no. No. Get out. <laughs> so, why was he flying uh, in uh, Tennessee? My dad lived in Memphis every two weeks as he was a FedEx commercial pilot there. So, he deliver cargo and stock and stuff like that. Um, but the reason why he went flying that day in died in a plane crash is he went to... I'm not going to name the company, but he went to a small uh, private pilot training school (laughs) essentially where you can... if you have a pilot's license and you're commercialized, you can generally go anywhere and uh, rent a a small plane. So my dad had actually grown up in Cessnas. Um, His dad would help maintain Cessnas. He learned to fly in a Cessna so he took a Cessna for fun um so some of the factors of why he crashed is that it had been raining heavily uh that day and then it cleared up and so he decided well I have some time before I need to go home let's let's go fly a plane for like two hours that'd be fun um and then the other factor is that the plane had crashed twice and this was the third whatever uh third rebuild it had Third maintenance, and so we actually don't know what happened. Just like Bessie Coleman, there was a wrench left in the engine. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, dude, we don't know. This is dark. Uh, no, it's fine. So, um, I we think something went wrong with the engine because one of the things that he did was also he turned off the fuel the fuel line, which is one of the things pilots are trained to do. When they know they're about to crash, because if they crash with the fuel line on, big combustion. So he called tower and said "mayday" three times, and then kind of saw a a huge field with like a pretty lake and whatever, and it's like, oh, maybe you know I can I can land there, uh, and. But because the ground was wet, we're thinking that the ground hit the wheels too hard, and the nose went into the ground, and then it flipped, and he died upon impact. So luckily, he was the only one. So there was no other victims in it, and so it's just him. It's a weird sentence to start with, luckily. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, The Seabirds family does not have a great reputation for surviving plane crashes. Hmm. The the farmland that my dad had crashed in, the gate was open, but we couldn't find the house to go ask permission. And we thought maybe uh, Farmer Chuck was on the field working and we didn't want to startle him. Um, so my brother decided he wanted to ask the neighbors. So we went over directly to the neighbors. The wife was out. So he waved her down and she's like on a little like tractor. She's like coming down the hill, come to see us. She was like how can I help you people? And we're like, hey, uh, so this is kind of like a long winded story, but like our dad (laughs) died over there in a plane crash. Like we were just wondering if you had the contact information for Chuck to, uh, to go see if we can get on the property. And she's like, ah, I don't know. Let me call him. So she's calling him, doesn't answer. And then her husband, whose name is Courtney (laughs) comes down the road. Uh, and he's like, what's going on here, guys? He's like, "What? What? what is it? And we're like, "Uh." Oh. And then she's like, oh, these kids, they lost their dad in a plane crash. What was it, 12 years ago? And he goes, oh, we've only been here for five years, but I think we heard about that. He's like, what happened? So Gunnar told him what happened, and she's, like, texting Chuck, and he's like, yeah, that's funny, because he's in Moab, Utah right now. He's like, you guys just slot places <laughs> all of a sudden he's like he has people renting his property right now that are hunting and fishing and shooting and we were like oh <laughs> so we we're, we're like ooh, should we go should we not like with the knowledge like they're probably not going to turn us away but you know you never know if the forest like camouflage like getting ready to shoot a turkey <laughs> or anything like that and so we're just sitting there kind of talking, and all of a sudden, she's like, I'm going to text Chuck, and so she's texting him, and then we hear a bing, and she just goes, Chuck says yes. <laughs> that was it. And so she's like, just go on the property, be really slow, and we're like, okay, thank you. They were so nice. Try not to look like deer. Yeah, try not to look like deer. She's like, roll your windows down. If you see someone squatting, just like, stop. <laughs> we're like, okay, we, we got it. <laughs> So we were able to get on the property via text text message, which was kind of funny in a way. But they were they were so nice. Gunners like, I want you to write down their address because I'm going to send them something later. And I was like, ah. Aww. After we received permission to drive on the property, we took our rental car slowly. We had been told there were people staying who were hunting, fishing, shooting and we needed to be careful. We drove cautiously, and it felt like another world. The path that had been indented by car tracks was surrounded by a dense mini forest. A turkey flew off, and the green trees blurred past in tranquil colors. When we emerged into the large open field, we saw the family fishing, but were acres apart, and we walked to the geolocation my brother has marked on his phone. The grass is large, hitting our shins, dry greens that make sense for a southern state. There's the chirping of birds, buzzing of bees, the small gust of wind that makes the heat pleasant and the rumblings of thunder in the background. I thought I would be angry entering this place, but I find a weird calm walking the land. It's beautiful, and I think, if there's a place to die, this is one of the prettiest spots to do it. I didn't cry as much as I thought I would. I can feel the heaviness in my throat. But after a little talk to myself and walking around, I find myself humming. If you've ever seen Howl's Moving Castle, the scene where Howl gifts Sophie his old field where he used to study as a boy, is exactly what it looks like. Mud, spread about flowers, green everywhere, a little lake in the middle. I bend down and pluck flowers, collecting them into my Hawaiian shirt pocket to press the in of my travel book, and I keep humming.
1: retracing how he died made the memory more about the ending, or or did it change how you're able to remember your father?
0: That's tough because I don't want to discredit my therapist (laughs) I've been working for, (laughs) working with for so many years. That really helped me, like, come to terms with my dad's death, but it definitely i i did a secret recording just for myself that i thought i would put in the podcast but i think it's just a little bit too personal but one of the one of the things that i said in there is like this place is beautiful it's peaceful it's calm like it's a it's just a great place to die and i also said like you know i don't know why i came here Whether it was to have like a final conclusion or if this is the end of an era and the beginning of another. So I feel like that's kind of what it was. It was not saying goodbye, but like finally making terms like, oh, here it is. Like I can finally see it with my brother because we were the only two in the family that hadn't seen it before. And now we've seen it and now we know what it's like. And we're like, okay, at least we know for sure, like if anything, it was a peaceful end. Um, And beautiful, too. Gunnar eventually waves me over and I come to face a divot in the ground. It's a foot-deep hole with some plants growing in the middle. This is where the nose hit and where my dad flipped and died upon impact. I expected crocodile tears. I thought my brother would cry. But instead... We're digging in the dirt with our hands, joking about finding Dad's finger or maybe a piece of the plane. But it's been 12 years, and we would need a metal detector to find anything. But we still dig with our hands, and our feet follow the dead grass that shows the imprint of the plane. It's a weird metaphor that shows how time heals wounds, but they don't disappear as people think they do, but become scars, and shadows and memories of what happened.
1: Thank you to annika for putting so much effort and so much vulnerability in today's episode from now on we'll be posting on the 1st and 15th of every month and we're creating mini episodes called women work go check that out and if you haven't already please donate to the piehole protesters You can find more information about that on our newsletter with articles following up previous episodes and current updates. Contact us through Instagram, email, Twitter, or whatever, and we'll get you on the list. Uh, The Piano Song is from Mixkit for royalty-free stock music. Check out Hats for Birds on Bandcamp for some good loops. At the beginning, I used a tiny part of the song, A Memphis Soul Stew, from King Curtis and the Kingpins. I highly recommend checking that out, because it slaps. And if you're in Memphis, check out the Lorraine Motel Museum and the Slave Haven Underground Railroad. Thanks, and the next recording will be August 1st. See you then. See you then.
0: Uh, (laughs) that's a good intro right there actually my dad loved that song so that wouldn't that wouldn't be too far off key (laughs)